Well, welcome to our Tuesday night Torah class. I'm glad I'm glad you were here. Last week was a little sparse. <laughs> so, um, let's see, why don't you let me open in a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for the evening. Thank you for uh, the winter weather that we're enjoying. Um, I thank you for this group of people that came out tonight to study your Torah. I ask that you just help us to uh, learn the things that you have for us to learn tonight. Help us to be uh, courteous to one another and listen. Uh, lead us in the directions that you want us to go. And I know you have something for each of us to take away. I just thank you for doing that. I just thank you for your Torah and for how much you love us. In Yeshua's name, amen. Okay, so I've been threatening to be through with the book of Numbers, and I'm going to finish tonight because we just don't have that much left. Um, last week, let's see, we talked about, well, the week before that, we had talked about the calendar, and we had a good time discussing that. Um, last week, we got into some things about vows, taking vows. Uh, that was in chapter 30 of Numbers. And then uh, we got into a rather long discussion about chapter 31, which was, my Bible titles the, the thing, uh, the passage, Vengeance on the Midianites, and we saw uh, that God had uh, decreed, if you will, that the Midianites must, essentially all except for the uh, immature females, had to die. And we discussed what, what, that, what kind of implications that meant for us. And then the latter part of chapter 31 was dividing the spoils, and we saw how the uh, the numbers, the book of Numbers being named as it is, is because whoever whoever wrote it, that is Moses, was really on a, a numbers jag, and he had all kinds of good number stuff in here. I just really like the book of Numbers, it's got fun stuff. Anyway, and then I think we had a little time left, and chapter 32, I was a little reluctant to begin because uh, there's some stuff that we needed to talk about. It's not, it's not real quick. But I think, if I'm not mistaken, those of you that were here can remind me, I think I read it, and then I said, we'll talk about it next week. Is that right? If, if, can anybody prove me wrong? You know, what? okay, good. <laughs> we don't have time for that. Okay. <laughs> so I think what I'd like to start with, if it's okay, cleverly forgot my glasses, would be um, chapter 32. It's 39 verses long, and I'd like to see if I could get someone to read chapter 32. Want me to do it? Okay. I'm going to go get my glasses, but I'll be right back. You go ahead and read. The whole thing? Yeah, the whole thing. It's only 39 verses. You can do it. I got 42 verses. Not okay, that maybe, I'm, count, maybe not that I'm counting. Told you about numbers. Didn't I? Okay. Uh, <laughs> now, the children, now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of cattle. And when they saw the land of Yazir and the land of Gilead, that behold, behold, the place was a place for cattle. The children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spake unto Moshe and to Eleazar the priest and unto the princess of the congregation, saying, At Torah, 
and Dibon and Yazer and Nimrah and Heshbon and Eli Ele and Sheban and Nebo and Beon, even the country which Yahweh smote before the, the congregation of Israel is a land for cattle, and thy servants have cattle. Wherefore said they, If we have found grace in thy sight, let this land be given unto thy servants for possession, and bring us not over Jordan. <clears throat> Verse 6. And Moses said unto the children of Gad, and unto the children of Reuben, Shall you, bring, brethren, go to war, and shall you sit here? And wherefore discourage ye the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which Yahweh hath given them? Thus did your fathers, when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up into the valley of Eskol and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the children of Israel that they should not go into the land which Yahweh had given them. And Jehovah's anger was kindled the same time, and he sware, saying, Surely none of the men that came up out of Egypt from twenty years old and up, upward shall see the land which I swear unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, because they have not wholly, wholly followed me, save Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, and Joshua the son of Nun. For they have wholly followed Yahweh. <clears throat> and, the, and Yahweh's anger was kindled against Israel, and he made them wander the wilderness forty years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of Yahweh was consumed. And behold, you are risen up in your father's stead, an increase, an increase of sinful men to augment yet the fierce anger of Yahweh toward Israel. For if you turn away from them, from after him, he will yet again leave them in the wilderness, and you shall destroy all his people. Verse 16. And they came near unto him, and he said, and said, We are here for our cattle and cities for our little ones. But we ourselves will go ready, armed before the children of Israel, until we have brought them unto the place, and our little ones shall dwell in the fenced cities because of the inhabitants of this land. We will not return unto our houses until the children of Israel have inherited every man his inheritance, for he will not inherit them, for he will not inherit with them on yonder side of Jordan or forward, because our inheritance is fallen to us on this side of Jordan eastward. And Moses said unto them, If we will do this thing, if Yea, we'll go armed before Jehovah to war, and we'll go, all of you, armed over Jordan before Jehovah until he had driven out his enemies from before him and the land he had subdued before Jehovah. Then afterward you shall return and be guiltless before Jehovah and before Israel, and this land shall be your possession before Jehovah. But if you will not... Do so, behold, you have sinned against Jehovah, and be sure you will sin, your sin will find you out. Build your cities for your little ones, and folds for your sheep, and do that which hath proceeded out of your mouth. And the children of Gad and the children of Reuben spake unto Moshe, saying, Thy servants will do as my Lord commandeth. Our little ones, our wives, our flocks, 
and all our sheep shall be there in the cities of Gilead. <clears throat> but thy servants shall pass over every man armed for war before the Lord to battle, as my Lord saith. So concerning them, Moses commanded Eleazar the priest, and Jehoshua the son of Nun, and the chief of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel. And Moses said unto them, If the children of Gad and the children of Reuben will pass with you over Jordan, every man armed to battle before Jehovah, and the land shall be subdued before you, then you shall give them the land of Gilead for a possession. But if they will not pass over <clears throat> you armed, they shall have pos uh, possessions among you in the land of Canaan. And the children of Gad and the children of Reuben answered, saying, as Jehovah has said, unto thy servants we will do. <clears throat> we will pass over armed before Jehovah into the land of Canaan, that the possession of our inheritance on this side of Jordan may be ours. And Moses gave unto them, even to the children of Gad, and to the, ch and to the children of Reuben, and unto half the tribe of Manasseh, the son of jo Joseph, the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, the land with the cities thereof in the coast, even the cities of the country round about. And the children of Gad built Debon and Atorat and Aror, Aror and Atrat and Shofan and Yazir and Yogbeha and Beth Nimra, Beth Nimra, sorry. Beth Haran bent cities and folds for sheep. And the children of Reuben built Heshbon and Eliale and Kiryathaim and Nebo and Baalimion, Baalmion, sorry. Their names were changed. And Shipma and gave other names unto the cities which they builded. Oh, we're not done. Verse 39. And the children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, went to Gilead and took it, and dispossessed the Amorite, which was in it. And Moshe gave Gilead unto Machir, the son of Manasseh, and he dwelt therein. And Yair, the son of Manasseh, went and took the small towns thereof, and called them Havot Yair. And Nobah went and took Kanat and the villages thereof, and called it Nobah after his own name. Okay, I knew that was going to be hard. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And I like the way you went back and corrected all the mispronunciations. That was very helpful. So, <laughs> okay. First of all, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can anybody just describe in a couple of sentences, you know, what what went on here, what the story is in this chapter? Uh, you know, a lot of times we fail just to get the big picture. So that's, if nothing else, that's what I really wanted to make sure. What what. What did these guys go to Moses with? What was their idea? Basically to strike a deal to, to keep that part of the land, and part of the deal was that they had to follow through and help uh, uh, the rest of Israel take the rest of the land. Okay, that's fine. So far, they had already... Um, did you have something you wanted to add? I want to make a comment, but go ahead. Okay. I'll make it in a minute. So, so far, they've already, you know, they, they've... They've beat Og, the whatever it was. Let's see, I've got them. Yeah, Og of Bashan and 
Og the king of, of Bashan and Sihon the king of the Amorites, they, he, they beat those guys and they took their holdings, all their land. So <clears throat> all their land is on the east side of the Jordan River. And so what they said was, is this is great land. And I have seen it. It's nice land. It's good grassland. And we got herds, and these herds would be very happy here. And they got cities that all they got to do is spruce up a little stuff here, and it'll be really great for us. We'd like to take our inheritance here. <coughs> what was Moses' initial reaction? He thought they didn't want to go fight, and he's going to get them in trouble again. Yep. And leave he basically hearkened back to the 12 spies. And he said, boy, last time you tried doing something like this, God got really mad, and I had to spend 40 years chasing you around in the desert. And none of those guys were still around. So, you know, uh, but Moses, he, he brought it up again. He says, this is not right. You know, God told us all to go do this. So what the guys come up with as an alternative? Well, they'd go fight, but when it was over with and everybody had their inheritance, they'd come back and everybody would yep. be happy. Yep, that's exactly right. They said... Okay, fine, fine. You know, we'll we'll go over there. We'll help. We'll be part of the twelve tribes of Israel long enough to take uh, take over the whole uh, western <clears throat> half of the of the land over there, west of the Jordan. But whenever it's over, we want to come back here. And in the meantime, our kids and our wives and our herds and everything are going to go ahead and set up shop here on the west, on the east side of the Jordan. My my, my comment is, did. The, the west side of the Jordan, was it part of, the, of what God intended to give them? You mean the east side? Where they were wanting to stay. No, not necessarily. Okay, so that raises a question to me. Mm -hmm. Why did they not think there was better land that God had for them on the other side of the river? Well, that's a good question. That's a very good question. Um, so certainly, I, I'm sure, one of the things I didn't notice until this very time through here was uh, in, in the beginning, back in, it's in verse 5, um, it says, this is when they're coming to Moses and suggesting this idea. It says, if we have found favor in your eyes, they said, then let, us, let this land be given to your servants as our possession. Do not make us cross the Jordan. So their first suggestion was, look, we'll just stay here. You guys go ahead and do whatever you want to do. We're staying here. So they really weren't going to go. The reason I bring that up at this, or their first suggestion was not to go. The reason I bring it up is there's probably a certain amount of fear involved in that. I mean, you know, I can understand. You know, they probably wouldn't want to, this is great land right here. You know, you guys, nobody's raised their hand and said, they'll take it. We'll take it. That way you, you can go do your own thing and we'll stay here. And boy, old Moses wasn't having any part of it, right? So I would think fear might be a part of it. Uh, you know, there's, there's another thing. Why would we want to go do that when there's, I mean, it might be great, but Stuff here is very good. I know they got short memories. Yes. But they've been running around the desert for these 40 years, and God's been providing for them. Uh-huh. And, and I'm sure they've been talking about how great it's going to be when they get, it, get over on the other side of the Jordan. Well, that's true, too. I mean, they've been dreaming about that. Yep. And it just seems odd to me that they would not expect for there to be something a lot better on the other side yeah. of the river. Yeah. You're, you're, you started the question by asking whether uh, this was part of the land that God had originally promised him. The, the, the descriptions of the land that God promised Abraham, yeah, it, well, it's, it's vague enough that it could definitely be. Yeah. I should probably, let's go look at a map and see what we're talking about here. 
Um, but this doesn't really go long enough. Here, let me go back. I have one that shows. Ah, here, this is a good map. This is you know, the this is the south end of the Dead Sea. Here's Moab. Here's Ammon. Here's Bashan. Okay, and uh, Gilead is up this way. So it's on the that says Gilead right there. Excuse me. It's on the the east side of the Jordan, this is the Jordan, so it's on the east side of the Jordan River, and it's all this land here, and uh, it's, like I say, it's good land. It's, it's land that'd be very attractive. Okay. Um, what else do I want to say here? Question. Yes. Did they have to fight anybody to get on the east side? Yep. As a matter of fact, several chapters back, we read about uh, God being with them whenever they... Uh, went to war with Og, king of Bashan, and Sihon, the king of the Amorites. And those are the, those are the guys that ruin, ruled that land. And so they've already conquered it, basically. And it's, you know, uh, it's theirs for the taking. I'm trying to understand as they start spreading out, um, there's, there's one Ark of the Covenant where God dwells. Um, and they had all these laws given to them um, that I thought some of the laws were dependent on being in that makeshift temple that they made, mm -hmm. right? The tent. Mm -hmm. um, so how would those other people keep the laws if mm -hmm. they're spread out? Well, that's a good question. Now, the... Um, certainly it was not difficult to do what God wanted them to do when they were all together, camped together, right? So they, they, that was not so difficult. But God had promised them this land, and the land was bigger than one big camp. So, and, and I will admit that thus far in the story, he hasn't made, he, God, hasn't made it real clear how this was going to be. But... Um, what we will find out in the book of Deuteronomy is uh, you'll start running into this phrase, um, I, let's see, my tabernacle will be in a city on which I will put my name. It's not named in Deuteronomy, but it's a city on which I will put my name. And as history unfolded, that city was Jerusalem. So the idea was, is Jerusalem was where all those things were going to, that's where God was going to dwell, was in the tabernacle, then the temple that was in Jerusalem. And the people had to come to Jerusalem three times a year. They had to come during the spring feasts at Shavuot and during the fall feasts. Those were called pilgrimage feasts. Now, outside of those three times, the, I'm going way off the, the, the story here, but way down a rabbit hole. But they, there were Levites. You know, the, the, the priests ran the, the services at the tabernacle. The Levites lived all over the country. And Levites, they had um, essentially, what do you want to call them? I don't know. I'll use the term daughter churches. They're synagogues. They, were, they weren't places of worship. They were places of learning. But the Levites, and we'll learn a lot more about that as we move through Deuteronomy. The Levites had a presence in the entire nation of Israel. They were spread out all over Israel. And, and all, there's 48 cities or more where the Levites, they were the... Uh, use the word owner. They, they they were their cities, and that's where local churches were, if you will. That's where the the government was was in the 
the outer reaches of the country. So, um, I, from my reading, I don't recall God clearly saying, you know, how you're going to do these things. He didn't. Okay. Um, now, it could have, you know, Joshua could have gotten some information. I don't know. But, I'm, but before Jerusalem was set up, I'm picturing these guys in the east going, well, we don't know where the tabernacle is. They're walking all over the place. Well, well actually, no. They said that they were going to not go back until everyone had been settled. Yeah. But, um, so I don't know. I just, like, what, well, how long did that take? It seems like well, the book, logistically. The book of Joshua explains all that. In that it does? Yeah, the book of Joshua uh, talks about how they conquered the stuff on the west side of the Jordan mm -hmm. and which tribe got which allotment. And there's a lot of very interesting stories. And by the time they were done, it was pretty much all under their control, there being the 12 tribes. Okay. Do you know how long that took? Uh, it wasn't all that long. It might have been 30 or 40 years, but it wasn't. Okay, it, but, the, but the law, I mean, there were things they had to do every year, right? Yes. How did they do it? They went to wherever the tabernacle was. Well, how did they know? How did everybody know where it was? Well, it was with... It it was with the Levites. It was with the priests. They they it was like um, where's the headquarters, so to speak. You kind of I don't know. I, I don't have a good answer for it. But the um, and, and I think it is an interesting point that God didn't reveal to them exactly how this was going to work out. You know, it's that's a fair question. On the other hand, God often does that. He he basically says, "Here, go over here. You know, do do this, and I'll fill in the details later." Anyway. Um. Let's see. What else are I going to ask about that? So who were the tribes that, uh, that ended up doing this? Yeah? Gad and Reuben, and then uh, <clears throat> Moses at the end throws in half Manasseh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Gad and Reuben were the two that suggested the idea, and you don't hear anything about half of the tribe of Manasseh until the very end of the of the chapter, right? Uh, now Manasseh was a big tribe. We, if we went back to the one that had all the the populations on it, Manasseh was a great big tribe, and so half of them had said, "I think we'd like to stay over here on the east side." Uh, the other half of them ended up getting an allotment on the west side. Yeah, I, I have a theory that Moses is like, I don't know if I trust these guys, <laughs> so I'm going to leave you half Manasseh and keep you guys in line. But. <laughs> could be, could be. I thought another thing that just dawned on me while we were reading this, Moses, uh, it became clear to me as we were reading that he knew he wasn't going to be around to make this happen. You know, he told them, he says, if, if you don't come back, I mean, if you know, don't come back until you've helped everything, until you subdued all the people in the West. And if you do come back, your sin will find you out say, you know, I'm going to beat you about the head and shoulders. He said, your sin will find you out. So he says, don't think just because I'm an old guy and you know I'm going to die here in a little while that you can get away with this. You, you, you've committed to this. You have to do it. And there's every indication when you read the book of Joshua that they did. Let's see. Okay. Any other questions or thoughts about that?
You ask good questions. Like I say, some of them, well, most of them, I don't have answers for. But we'll figure it out as we move along. You want to move on? This is starting a new uh, portion. You know, the Torah is divided up into portions, and this is a new portion. It's portion number 43, and it's called Masai. Masai means stages. And um, what it is, if you kind of just glance ahead at the chapter, it's what, who's ever heard of a triptych? Triptych? If you're a member of AAA, you've heard of a triptych. I got excited about that today, so I went and made one. If you go to the AAA site and you say you want to go, for example, I wanted to go from my house here in Mesa, Arizona to Albuquerque, which I did last week, and you get a triptych. And the triptych says, "From this is my address in Mesa, and I wanted to go there in Albuquerque. And it says, you go west on this street, and you turn, and then you go this way, and you drive down this way, and you go down Bush Highway for 24.4 kilometers, you turn right onto Payson, and on and on. Of course, the big one is here, you uh, uh, turn right, emerge into Interstate 40, and you drive for 382 kilometers. <laughs> but anyway, that, that's what a triptych is. It's a, it's a listing of the way you get from point A to point B. Chapter 33 is the Israelites' triptych. Okay, this goes back to the beginning and says, okay, you start here, uh, by the, the pyramids in Egypt, and you go, you know, 10 miles this way, and you do this, and you, do, and you look for the McDonald's on the left, and then you turn, and you do all this stuff. So I thought, well, this is a little bit uh, intimidating when you first read it, but we'll go through it and uh, see if we can kind of figure some things out. Now, I have to, I went and got my glasses, so I guess I probably should do this. It's full of unpronounceable names, okay? So I'm going to read... The first 49 verses, and then we'll come back and, and talk about it, all right? Is there any questions? So, chapter 33. Here are the stages in the journey of the Israelites when they came out of Egypt by divisions under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. At Yahweh's command, Moses recorded the stages in their journey, and this is their journey by stages. The Israelites set out from Ramesses, on the 15th day of the first month, the day after the Passover, they marched out boldly in full view of all the Egyptians who were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them, for Yahweh had brought judgment on their gods. The Israelites left Ramesses and camped at Sukkoth. They left Sukkoth and camped at Etham and on the edge of the desert. They left Etham and turned back to Pi Haaroth to the east of Baal Zephon, and camped near Migdal. They left Pi Haaroth and passed through the sea into the desert, and when they had traveled for three days in the desert of Etham, they camped at Mara. They left Mara and went to Elam, where there were twelve springs and seventy palm trees, and they camped there. They left Elam and camped by the Red Sea. They left the Red Sea and camped in the desert of Sin. They left the desert of Sin and camped in Dovkah, they left Dovka and camped at Alush. They left Alush and camped at Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. They left Rephidim and camped in the desert of Sinai. They left the desert of Sinai and camped in Kibith Hataava. They left Kib Kibroth Hataava and camped at Hazaroth. They left Hazaroth and camped at Rithma. They left Rithma and camped at Ramon Perez. 
They left Ramon Perez and camped at Libna. They left Libna and camped at Rissa. They left Rissa and camped at Kehilatha. They left Kehilatha and camped at Mount Shefer. They left Mount Shefer and camped at Herada. And they left Herada and camped at Machheloth. They left Machheloth and camped at Tahath. And they left Tahath and camped at Terah. They left Terah and camped at Mithkah. They left Mithkah and camped at Hashmona. They left Hashmona and camped at Moseroth. They left Moseroth and camped at Benaja Khan. They left Benaja Khan and camped at Hor Hagagad. They left Hor Hagagad and camped at Jopotha. And they left Jopotha and camped at Abranah. They left Abranah and camped at Etzion Geber. And they left Etzion Geber and camped at Kadesh in the desert of Zin. They left Kadesh and camped at Mount Hor on the border of Edom. At Yahweh's command, Aaron the priest went up on Mount Hor, where he died on the first day of the fifth month of the fortieth year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. The Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev of Canaan, heard of, that the Israelites were coming. They left Mount Hor and camped at Zalmona. They left Zalmona and camped at Punon. They left Punon and camped at Oboth. They left Oboth and camped at Ai Abarim on the border of Moab. They left Aim and camped at Debon God. They left Debon God and camped at Almon Diblathim. They left Almon Diblathim and camped in the mountains of Abarim near Nebo. They left the mountains of Abarim and camped on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. There on the plains of Moab they camped along the Jordan from Beth Deshemoth to Abel Shatim. Wasn't that fun? That's a, that's a triptych. That's, you know, if it were a freeway, those are the different little towns you'd run through as you were driving down the road. And so it, it bears looking at for just a, a couple of minutes. Many of these places, most of them, nobody knows where they are, you know, anymore. They, but we do know enough to kind of know more or less where they are. <clears throat> now this map, you know, I, I go through and I find maps, and I don't like any map perfectly. This one's I don't like because it's got Mount Sinai and Rephidim down here in the Sinai Peninsula. Um, the when Moses left Egypt, he went to Midian, and he met his wife and his father-in-law at Midian. And Midian, most everybody believes, is on the uh, western side, the eastern side of the Gulf of Aqaba here. So it's on the western side of the Arabian Peninsula. So uh, I think it's much more likely that Mount Sinai is over here. And there's a lot of books and a lot of people that think the same thing. And there's some biblical proof, too. For example, in the New Testament, Paul talks about how he went to Sinai in Arabia. And this has always been called Arabia, this big Arabian Peninsula. Anyway, so there's the wilderness of Paran, which we read about, Kadesh Barnea. There's Edom, Moab, Dibon, Heshbon. Um, there's, I think that's Nebo. But the plains of Moab across from Jericho. Jericho is right at the north end of the Dead Sea, so it's right up there. So all of this stuff happened essentially 
you know, they left here, they went over to here, and they came up and they wandered around here for a good long time, and then they, they came down, you know, Edom wouldn't let them pass, so they had to go around Edom and up the, up the east side. So that's where they went, just to kind of put it in a, in a summary form. But there's some of the things that we can find on here. Um, so who wrote this down? It says in the first verse. Yeah, go ahead. Just a second. Yeah, I was wondering, Jerry, if uh, they have not uh, messed up where God put them in a wilderness for, for 40 years, what would have been the direct route if they have not done that? Well, there's, there's two answers to that question. One is when they left at Passover, you know, uh, the easy way to get there is obviously to go to the coast and go like this, right? That's obviously the easiest way to get there. But God, you remember, God told them not to. You remember why? Yeah, he says, the, you'll go up this way and you'll see, you know who lived up in here? The, uh, the, the beg your pardon? Well, no, that was actually Gath and Goliath and the, you know, they're, they're big old guys. The, the Philistines lived up there. And yeah, and God said, we can go back and read it if you want, that if they go that way, they'll run into some of this stuff and they'll chicken out. So I'm going to lead them down this way. So God led them down this way. That's the first answer to your question. Then they were wandering around in there. They stayed down here and got the Ten Commandments and built the, built the tabernacle. I'm answering your question. Okay. And then they, uh, they basically... In my opinion, they probably spent most of the 40 years right around in here. They sent the 12 spies out from Kadesh Barnea. And the 12 spies went up here, looked at all kinds of stuff, and came back down. And then they scared everybody to death talking about the, the large people up there and all that kind of stuff. So the answer to your question is, um, if, they, if the 12 spies hadn't come back with their, the 10 of them hadn't come back with that bad report, they probably would have just marched right up this way and it would have been a done deal. But So there's two answers to that question. So what's your other question? Oh, I'm sorry. Marvin, you go ahead. I've, I've got a question. It's, it's a little bit different. On a timeline from creation, how far is this removed? I mean, how many thousands of years? This, this more than likely occurred in about... Um, Well, I, well, there's certain dates I can remember. Moses was born in 1948 from Adam. Okay? So Moses was almost 2,000 years after Adam. And this was about four or 500 years. I'm sorry, Abraham. 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 I meant to say Abraham. Abraham was born in 1948 after Adam. And so this was about four or 500 years after that. So this would be around 2,500 years from creation. And it would be about 1,500 years from the birth of Messiah. The, the reason I'm asking this is I was watching something the other night on TV, and they were, it was a, something on the Sahara Desert. Mm -hmm. And they've determined that it wasn't always desert. Mm -hmm. and, and I was just wondering, maybe this whole area wasn't always a wilderness like we think it is. Well, I, I bet it wasn't. Certainly before the flood, who knows? I mean, you know, all... All bets are off before the flood. I was wondering, too, when uh, God uh, made the 
Israel to go through the wilderness, was that a result of their sinning? Uh, first part. And the second part was uh, that a wilderness experience uh, proving to them what God is able to do or, or what he has done or what he's going to do. But the answer to, to both of those questions is yes. <laughs> Let me tell you. It, it is because their, their faith was so weak that they believed these guys that came back and told them how big the people were in the land and all that kind of stuff, and they didn't have the faith to believe God who had said, I will take care of you, I will give you that land. So yes, it was because of their sin, their sin of unbelief, their sin, the lack of faith, if you will. Um, what was the other part that you had there? Oh, okay, yeah, that's true. Now, the, the, in terms of that generation, they died, right? So they all died out there in the desert. But um, God says, and we're going to read about it in Deuteronomy, he said, the whole purpose of testing is so that you will know what's in your heart. So it's always the same. It's been that way from the beginning, and it's that way today. So whatever we're going through tests, you, I've done this, and I, I've gotten to where I'm, I wouldn't say good at it, but pretty good at it. When I'm going through something kind of bad, I have to ask myself, is this the result of some delusion? Is this the consequence of that? Or is this God, is this God, putting me into circumstances so that I can see what, what's in my heart. In which case, I pray, would you help me hurry up and figure this out because I don't like it, you know. But it's one of those two reasons. You're, you're being, if you feel like you're being tested, it's so that you will learn what's in your heart and then therefore understand more how God wants you to behave, or it's because you did something stupid and this is what you get. I never saw this before, so this is back toward the beginning in verse 4 um, when it says that um, also on their gods the Lord had executed judgments. Yep. Um, I I had always assumed that, you know, there was one God and that, that everything else was sort of false, or not false, but um, not real. But this makes it sound like the little G gods are actually something, and yep. he executed judgment, which, gosh, I wish he would have gone into more detail. I would have loved to have known what these judgments were. Well, and I, so the question is, I guess there are little, there well, were little G's. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let me, let me, this is good. I, I can tell you haven't been through uh, Exodus, because in Exodus, we'll talk about how every single plague was, you know, this to one of their gods. Because, you know, each one of those gods, that, that when the, the plague was specifically designed to show how weak and impotent that god was compared to our god. And so it was, he showed judgment on all the gods of Egypt by picking them each. And, and, and you know, like the, the plague of darkness, that was a, to show who was, uh, to show the ineptitude, if you will, of Egypt's sun god. And all of them were that way. Now, the fact of whether or not these gods exist is, um, let's see, how can I put this? It's almost beside the point, because if the people believe they exist, they exist. You know, if people would give the worship and the uh, service to these other non-gods, 
uh, rather than the God of the creator God of the universe, then God doesn't like that. Now, I happen to think they do exist, you know, but uh, whether or not they exist is almost beside the point because we're in the same boat today that we were back then, and we don't have all these little gods, really, but we have, we have some others that are just as bad. They certainly don't have little names and are represented by bulls and stuff like that. But, you know, I can talk about them sometime. Yeah. Well, it, it seems pretty clear. I don't think that Moses would have wrote this. That he, I mean, they had to have some existence to have judgments executed yep. on them. Yep. Um, and it was, it was just kind of eye-opening to me because I always, it, it, it alludes to the fact that they must have had some power, yes. never as much as yes. our number one God, you know, yep. but they must have had some, and I, I can imagine possibly that these were from the fallen angels, yep. just a guess, well, that's, but. That's kind of my guess too. Okay. Yeah. Now the, the one that's been real kind of eye-opening for me to realize that these people lived in a, an environment that had many gods to choose from, you know? And so our God was, was basically selling himself. You know, he was saying, you know, yeah, you've got all these other decisions you can make, all these other guys that you can worship if you want to. Uh, and a big part of the reason for the Exodus, you know, for the, the 10 plagues was so that God could prove uh, you know, who he was. As a matter of fact, when we go read the story again, he says that very thing. He says, he says to Pharaoh, he says, I raised you up for this very purpose, you know? And it was not just for the Israelites. The Israelites' purpose, their, what do they call it? I can't pronounce the French, reason d'etre. The, the reason for the existence of the Israelites was so that everybody on earth would see who God was. So, you know, he's, he's playing the game totally Totally fair. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, a couple of things to your point. I mean, uh, in the Tower of, uh, part of the Tower of Babel judgment that God gave these nations over to lesser gods, you know, uh, and be, because they were not listening to him. Uh, but to bring it forward into the Britha or the New Testament, there was... In Ephesians, it says we don't wrestle against a principal powers, you know, you know, and that stuff. So it's really clear that it there is a uh, uh, counterinsurgency or counter, you know, on the other side of yep. things. There's that an we, enemy. Yeah, there is that enemy, and that, that enemy is, quite frankly, diverse, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, if you... I mean, I have studied uh, Greek mythology myself, and it's kind of curious that um, how anti-God it really is. And even in the um, uh, New Testament, that uh, that one of the things that Christ overcame was Hades, which was Hades, which was the Greek god of death, you know, and he ruled over the underworld if you read the first part of Genesis real close he talks about gods that were with him when, he, when everything was created mm -hmm. and so 
there's a lot to this. Yeah, we can talk about that sometime outside of this, but that's it's it's true. It's there, and it makes a big difference to your understanding. I think. Um, let me go back and just ask a couple little obvious questions here. Um, verse eight. I, I like this. This is probably the most understated um, mention of an important event. Verse 8 reads, They left Pi Haharoth and passed the sea into the desert. When they had traveled for three days in the desert of Adam, they camped in Marah. Now, what, what happened in that verse? What is that talking about? That's parting of the Red Sea right there. That, that's, that's the triptych. You know, you, the Red Sea parts right here on the, on the triptych, you know. Um, let's see. Um, I have some others like that, or maybe I've lost them. Oh, I know the one of the ones I was interested in. If you go back, and this is, uh, let's see. Verse 15 says, They left Rephidim and camped in the desert of Sinai. They left the desert of Sinai and camped at Kith, Kiroth Hataava. And it's right in there, I think, that the. Well, we'd have to go back to, I think it's Numbers 11:35. I'm winging it a little bit, so don't be too upset if this doesn't work out right. Yeah. Numbers 35, 11, 35 says, um, from Kibroth Hata'ava, the people tra traveled to Hazaroth and stayed there. Um, this was just before they sent out the spies. Okay? So uh, that in verse 17 is before they sent out spies. Then they got a whole list of places that are hard to figure out where they are. Uh, but then over here in verse... 35 that says they, I'm back in number 33 again. Verse 35 says they left Abronah and camped at Etzion Geber. Etzion Geber means a lot to me. Number one, it's always on all the maps. It's right there. It's today's Aqaba. I lived there for almost a year. Um, so Etzion Geber is one of those places that is a real, you know, that, that thumbtack goes right there. It's not moved. It's, it's real obvious where it is. And that was on their way uh, up through Edom and around. So they, they had left and were on their way. The 40 years was over at this point. So somewhere right in there, and not only that, but after verse 35, 36, um, 37, it talks about they left Kadesh and camped at Mount Hor and Edom, and that's where uh, um, Aaron died. So Aaron died toward the end of their 40 years. So I, I guess what I'm saying is they... That's why I've deduced that they spent pretty much all of that 40 years right around here. And I've been down there. It's not bad. I mean, nothing grows. Uh, but it's got some pretty, you know, sandstone cliffs, things like that. It's, but it's desert, man. It's hot. And I always like to point out, too, that, you know, this is sea level. This is the sea, obviously. And this, at the Dead Sea here, has got the unique property that it's the lowest point on earth. And it's like 13, I think it's 1,300 or maybe it's, yeah, it's certainly over a thousand feet below sea level. So to me, 
you know, this is sea level, and this is sea level, and this is way below sea level. Someday, it's going to fill up. You know? And when it does, the, it's, it's below sea level from here all the way. The entire Jordan River is below sea level, and the Sea of Galilee is below sea level. So the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea and the Jordan River will all become one body of water someday. That just, as an engineer, that just has to happen. I'm surprised this lasted this long. Harden hose and stick it right here and then unroll it up there in the Dead Sea and suck on it and start a siphon. And then eventually it'd be done. But anyway, I digress, obviously. Any thoughts about the triptych thing? This is fun. I mean, this is really kind of a good thing. You look at this stuff in, uh, in Numbers, and you read a, a chapter like that, and you think, my gosh, what's the point of this? But after you've read it enough, and you realize, I mean, if nothing else, this name like Pi Haaroth, I mean, that might catch in your brain, and you think, oh, well, I saw that. And if you're really studious about it, you could Google it, or you could you know, look it up in your concordance, and you'd find that, sure enough, that, that same word is used back in the beginning of Exodus when they were leaving. Egypt, and you can find out exactly where that was used. And so this triptych thing is really kind of fascinating to me. Okay, if there aren't any other questions, let's start at verse 50 in chapter 33, and just read to the end of the chapter. Would somebody like to read from verse 50 to the end of the chapter? It's okay, I have New King James, right? That's fine. Okay. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan, across from Jericho, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Destroy all their engraved stones, destroy all their molded images, and demolish all their high places. You shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it, for I have given you the land to possess. And you shall divide the land by lot as an inheritance among your families. To the larger you shall give a larger inheritance, and to the smaller you shall give a smaller inheritance. There everyone's inheritance shall be whatever falls to him by lot. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Moreover, it shall be that I will do to you as I thought to do to them. Okay. So this is kind of a sobering verse. We got a couple of questions here. Let's go over those first. I'm glad you guys are getting into this. This uh, reminds me of the, in the scriptures where uh, whoever uh, God told uh, uh, Israel to destroy all the animals, everything. Yep. And uh, this couple uh, kept some sheep or something and they heard the, the cattle or the sheep's baying or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then uh, that was a disobedience. Mm -hmm. And so when God tells him, hey, I want everything wiped out, mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. That story is uh, Samuel and Saul. Yep. Does that represent for us to get rid of all the traits of character that are similar to Satan? Yeah. They drive them out. Oh, all yeah. day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All day. Yeah, and one of the things. Demons we have. <laughs> yeah, here, here. It's okay. I'll let, I'll let, we'll go on for a while. Maybe you guys will say everything I was going to say. So that's, that's good. He didn't tell them to, to destroy him. He said drive them out. Well, some of them he says that, and some of them he says destroy them. No, I mean, in this, yep. verse yeah, here, in this verse, he says he drive them out. He didn't tell them to kill them. Nope, that's true. Some of them he does, some of them he doesn't. The, the ones, though, that he wanted to have completely taken out, mm-hmm. right down to the animals and, and men, women, and children, was an unredeemable people. Yeah. And so... Yeah. It could have been due to potential genetic impurities that links back to the Genesis six it narrative. Could have, but it could have. That, that's why regardless, I say, regardless, they were unredeemable. And to me, yep. And and to me, as as uh, oh, I don't want to say it cruel as that might seem to us, if we're going to believe God's who He says He is, then we're going to have to believe that He knows what He's doing. Yeah. As we were reading verse uh, 55, it made me think of Paul and the thorn that he had in his side. Because I know everyone's always kind of wondered, well, what was that? Yeah, nobody knows what it really was, yeah. But I think, doesn't this kind of maybe give us a clue? Well, it could. It could. I mean, well, I'll tell you this. Where you're going, I've always thought about this, is if you look at the history of what happened to Israel, you know, once they got in the land, they did not do this, and they did not do it in a big way. Mm-hmm. You know, there was this story after story of them not doing this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and where it says there, it says uh, uh, in verse 55, if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. They will give you trouble in the land where you will live, and then I will do to you what I planned to do to them. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. Part of, uh, too, with them destroying the idols or their high places was to alleviate the enemy's jurisdiction over that particular regional territory. Yep. And so, you know, there's a spiritually bound deal Mm -hmm. by whatever horrific acts took place around that idol. Yep. And so the enemy has territory, and by them destroying it, it's the most high reclaiming, if yep. you will. Yep, that's exactly right. Okay. Go ahead. I was just talking to him. Are you talking about the spiritual or physical realm? Yeah. No, it's important what he's saying. So it's the idea that blessed are those who mourn, right? Because this is a very obviously sobering, like you said, passage. 
So we come back to where we are now, right? And if all these things are supposed to be to help us to transition into what we're going to be facing or what we're going to have to do, um, you know, we have to really look at her question, what are the gods, you know, and, um, and they're, they're really sobering and they're very big and they're very in our face. I know he knows and probably a lot of us here, um, but it's a big can of worms. So, (laughs) because some of it, you know, it takes place even in our worship that we don't Mm -hmm. recognize it's, Mm -hmm. it's there or some of us do. And then what we need to be dealing with that first within our very closest places of our own families and then here our family here Mm -hmm. and making sure that we're really addressing it. Because if we can't address it here, the courage that we're going to need to be able to address it as we come in to actually do what you say, obviously, Yasharal never got to the point of doing. Um, The distinction, I believe, is in us coming into the end and being blameless and spotless for our king is that obviously we're going to have to do things differently. I mean, we're going to put, we're going to do what they wouldn't do. We're going to say we're, we repent and how, how, how are you going to be relenting? And you know, how, how are we going to transition into this whole kingdom? You know, obviously we are transitioning and we have this role, priestly role, like you were saying, how important it is that we pray. Our prayers are that priestly role and we have to be winning it in the spiritual realm first. And then we're going to know how to do the rest of it. But um, our time together, like we really do, especially all of you know, anyone who's at that place, we really need to be together um, interceding. Yeah. Okay, are there any other issues about the triptych stuff? Any other thoughts? We can go on to chapter 34 then. I do believe we're going to make it. Um, Chapter 34 is not very long. 29 verses. Would someone like to read it? There's not a good stopping point, really. Over here. Good. Chapter 34. And Yahweh spoke to Moshe, saying, Command the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land of Canaan, this is the land which falls to you as an inheritance, the land of Canaan to its boundaries. Then your southern border shall be from the wilderness of Sin, along the border of the southern border shall be eastward from the end of the Salt Sea. Then your border shall turn from the southern side of the ascent of Akabim, continue to Zin, and be on the south of Kadesh Barnea, and it shall go on to Hatsar Adar and continue to Atzmam. And the border shall turn from Atzmam to the wadi of Mitzrayim, and it shall end at the sea. As for the western border, you shall have the great sea for a border. This is your western border. And this is your northern border. From the great sea, you mark out your borderline to Mount Hor. From Mount Hor, you mark out your border to the entrance of Hamath, and the edge of the border shall be towards Sedad, and the border shall proceed to Zephron, and it shall end at Hetzar Anan. This is your northern border. And you shall mark out your eastern border from Hetzar Anan to Shephim, and the border shall go down from Shephim to Riblah on the east side of Ain, 
and the border shall go down and reach to the eastern side of the sea of Kinnereth. And the border shall go down <coughs> along the Jordan, and it shall end at the Salt Sea. This is your land with its surrounding boundaries. And Moshe commanded the children of Israel, saying, This is the land which you inherit by lot, which Yahweh has commanded to give to the nine tribes and to the half-tribe. For the tribe of the children of Reuben, according to the house of their fathers, and the tribe of the children of Gad, according to the house of their fathers, have received their inheritance. And the half-tribe of Manasseh has received its inheritance. The two tribes and the half-tribe have received their inheritance beyond the garden of Jericho, Jericho, eastward toward the sunrise. And Yahweh spoke to Moshe, saying, These are the names of the men who divide the land among you as an inheritance, Eleazar the priest and Yehoshua son of Nun, and take one leader of every tribe to divide the land for the inheritance. And these are the names of the men, from the tribe of Yehuda, Caleb son of Yephunneh, and from the tribe of the children of Shimon, Shemuel son of Amuhid, Amehud, sorry, from the tribe of Benamin, Elidad, son of Kislon, and a leader from the tribe of the children of Dan, Buki, son of Yogli, from the sons of Yosef, a leader from the tribe of the children of Manasseh, Haniel, son of Ephod, and a leader from the tribe of the children of Ephraim, Cumel, son of Shiphtan, and a leader from the tribe of the children of Zebulun, Elitzaphon, son of Parnach. <laughs> this is fun. It. You're doing fine. <laughs> and a leader from the tribe of the children of Issachar, Altiel, son of Azan. And a leader from the tribe of the children of Asher, Ahihud, son of Shalomi. And a leader from the tribe of the children of Naphtali, Pedahel, son of Amihud. These are the ones Yahweh commanded to, to divide the inheritance among the children of Israel in the land of Canaan. Okay, great. We can go back and review that just a minute. Another, This is another one of those chapters, which is full of words you can't understand, right? But um, he, the first part of the chapter, God is kind of laying out the boundaries. And I don't, I don't know where they all are, but I know that if it says your southern side, I'm in verse 3. Your southern side will include some of the desert of Zin along the border of Edom. So here's the, the wilderness of Zin, and Edom is right in here. So it's going to be down in this area. Um, uh, on the east, you're so okay. Starts from the east into the Salt Sea. This is the Dead Sea is the Salt Sea. So it starts here, and it comes down around like this, and then um, it, it then turns to the west. I don't know where Scorpion Pass is. Continues to the desert of Zen and goes to Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea is very, again, that's another one of those places that's well known. I've been there. There's a little, they call them a Moshav. It's a, uh, an Israeli outpost at Kadesh Barnea. And today, Kadesh Barnea is about a mile or two miles from the Egyptian border. You know, in the 67 war, I guess it was, the, uh, um, the Egyptians invaded Israel from the south and the Assyrians evaded them from the north. And at the end of that war, um, the Israelis owned the whole Sinai Peninsula, 
and they had the Golan Heights. And the Egyptians, this is all current, right? This is 1967. The Egyptians um, decided they'd like to have a peace treaty with Israel and, and in exchange for getting the Sinai back. So Israel said, fine, you know, we took it, it's ours. They, the Israeli tanks were on the border of the Suez Canal. Uh, but they gave it back to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians signed a peace treaty. And that was 1967, and the Egyptians have been a fair peace partner with the Israelis ever since. Good thing. The Assyrian, or the Syrians wanted the Golan Heights back. That's way up north. I'll show you in a minute. Um, but they, wouldn't, they weren't interested in negotiating, and the Israelis didn't really want to give it back. The Golan Heights is much more strategically advantageous than the Sinai Peninsula. The Sinai Peninsula is just, I mean, it's worse than Yuma. <laughs> it's really bad down there. But anyway, so basically the, the border then starts here and goes kind of down south around Kadesh Barnea, and then the Wadi of Egypt is, I don't know, some vague little dry riverbed over in this area. So it basically gets them over to the, dead, or to the Mediterranean Sea. And then it says the whole western border is the Mediterranean Sea. And I'm going to try to find some other map that goes a little farther north. So it goes, get my little spot thing back, goes up the thing here. And then it goes all the way up to Lebanon, essentially. This is the uh, Sea of Galilee, so it goes quite a bit north of that. And then it starts talking about uh, Mount Hor. And it's terribly confusing because you're confused with the Mount Hor that uh, Aaron is supposed to be buried on that's in Edom. It's not the same Mount Hor. I don't know what's going on there, but there's a list of a whole bunch of other places. Labo Hamath and Zadad and Ziphron and Hazainan. All of those places are up north here somewhere. And I gather that it's in my mind or what I've read, it's not clear whether it would, would include Damascus or not. Probably not, if I had to guess. And then it says, your eastern boundary, you go from Hazar Anon to Shephem. I'm in verse 10, verse 11 says, the boundary will go down from Shechem to Riblon, the east side of Ain. There is on the, the uh, uh, east side of the Sea of Galilee a Moshav named something Ain. So I guess the name's there anyway. Um, and then it goes on down this way. And then here, here is Bashan and Gilead. So it comes, essentially, today, it's the, uh, it's the border, Jordan forms that, the Jordan River forms that border between Israel and Jordan, the nation. Anyway, that's, that's what's described here. So Moses, uh, Moses says, pick a leader from each tribe, and when you get across and you get all the, the bad guys subdued, these leaders will be the ones that's responsible for taking the allotment. And do you, do you remember we talked about, I think Moses has already said how this is to be done. It mentioned it here too. Do you see? Do you remember how the land is supposed to be allotted? It's allotted by tribe with the more numerous tribes getting a larger allotment than the less numerous tribes, and it is to be done by lot. I think it's interesting that God picked the people that were going to divide it in each one of the tribes. Yeah. Moses didn't pick them. That's, yep. Nobody that's, did. Yep. Uh, God picked them. God picked I thought that them. was interesting. Very good point. Very good point. Okay. Any other thoughts about that? 
Okay, we'll move right along. We only have two chapters left, and they're short. Now, this next chapter is chapter 35, and it deals with uh, cities of refuge and towns for the Levites. It's kind of an interesting chapter. Um, let's, let's read just the first uh, five verses, and then we'll read the rest of it. Would someone like to read just the first five verses of chapter 35? Someone that doesn't run and read much? <laughs> Show well. Hemshem spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan. At Jericho, saying, Command the children of Israel that they should give to the Levites from the heritage of their possession, cities for dwelling, and open space for the cities all around them. You shall give. Let's see. And you shall. Uh, the cities will be theirs for dwelling, and their open space will be for their animals, for their wealth, and for all their needs. The open spaces of the cities that you shall give to the Levites from the wall of the city outward, a thousand cubits all around, you shall measure from outside the city on the eastern side, 2,000 cubits, on the southern side, 2,000 cubits, and on the western side, 2,000 cubits, and on the northern side, which the city in the middle, it shall be for them the open space of the cities. Okay. So, um, let's see if we can just ask the questions here. What's, what's, what's God decide, or what's he prescribing here? What's he want to have? What portion of land do the Levites get? They, essentially, they don't get a tribal inheritance. They get individual cities that are spread throughout the land. Okay, And these cities are rather small, and they, um, uh, they get a certain amount of pasture land around the city. And the pasture land is to be used to raise herds and flocks. These cities are, uh, let's see, I, th I think the best way to describe them is they're kind of like county seats. Okay. They're a local form of government. The Levites, because they're Levites, are trained in Torah, and they're still following the kind of stuff that uh, uh, the way God intended it to be, in that there's the high priests and the priesthood itself um, exists, we'll find out, in the city where God will put his name, which will be Jerusalem. But all these cities are local outposts, if you will. They're like county governments, um, in a way. And the Levites um, run them. They, they're, they're used for several different purposes. Certainly, they're a place, it's courthouse. You know, they're a place where they could record records and where they could bring disputes. And the Levites are supposed to be trained enough in Torah to be able to handle the simple disputes. And the big ones, they could shove it up to the Supreme Court, which is in Jerusalem and handled by the priest. I was I was noticing in uh, Strong's uh, Torah that all the cities were in the center. All the other fields and everything else was outside the the cities. Well, these are specifically cities. You're right. The land that's going to be given to the rest of the Israelites. That's right. They're but not the, necessarily cities. They're just land. 
but the cities themselves were in the center. Well, that's the way it defined it. Yeah. Okay. Um, does it say how many? Uh, I must have said it because I asked it. How many towns were the Levites to receive in the land? I don't read it right there, but I'm not. Beg your pardon? Verse 6 says. Oh, no. The, that's not the. Well, that's okay. I think I'll just leave that alone for now. It, there was more than six. These six are special, and we'll read about those. That's a good segue. <laughs> These are just towns for the Levites, okay? These are towns for the Levites that don't live and work in Jerusalem is what they're for. Okay, Let's read about, starting at verse 6 for the rest of that chapter, and we'll find out what these other, other six cities are for. Does somebody want to read that? I will, if you want. Or did, did you raise your hand? No? Okay, I'll read it. Just got to let me put my glasses on here. Okay. Starting in verse 6 of chapter 35, six of the towns you give the Levites will be cities of refuge, which a person who has killed someone may flee. In addition, give them 42 other towns. That's right. The, the grand total was 48. 48 such cities. Six of which are going to be cities of refuge, to which a person who has killed someone may flee. Um, in verse 7, in all, you must give the Levites 48 towns together with their pasture lands. The towns you give the Levites from the land of the Israelites, that the land the Israelites possess, are to be take, given in proportion to the inheritance of each tribe. Take many towns from a tribe that has many, but few from one that has few. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into Canaan, select some towns to be your cities of refuge, to which a person who has killed someone accidentally, may flee. They will be places of refuge from the avenger, so that a person accused of murder may not die before he stands trial before the assembly. These six towns you give will be your cities of refuge. Give three on this side of the Jordan and three in Canaan as cities of refuge. These six towns will be a place of refuge for Israelite aliens and other people living among them, so that anyone who has killed another accidentally can flee there. If a man strikes someone with an iron object so that he dies, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if anyone has a stone in his hand that could kill, and he strikes someone with it so that he dies, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if anyone has a wooden object in his hand that could kill, and he hits someone so that he dies, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. If anyone with malice aforethought shoves another or throws something at him intentionally so that he dies, or if in hostility he hits him with his fist so that he dies, that person shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. But if without hostility someone suddenly shoves another or throws something at him unintentionally, or without seeing him, drops a stone on him that could kill him, and he dies, then since he was not his enemy, and he did not intend to harm him, 
the assembly must judge between him and the avenger of blood according to these regulations. The assembly must protect the one accused of murder from the avenger of blood and send him back to the city of refuge to which he fled. He must stay there until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. But if the accused ever goes outside the limits of the city of refuge to which he has fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the city, the avenger of blood may kill the accused without being guilty of murder. The accused must stay in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Only after the death of the high priest may he return to his own property. These are to be the legal requirements for you throughout the generations to come wherever you live. Anyone who kills a person is to be put to death as a murderer only on the testimony of witnesses. No one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. Do not accept a ransom for the life of a murderer who deserves to die. He must surely be put to death. Do not accept a ransom for anyone who has fled to a city of refuge and so allow him to go back and live on his own land before the death of the high priest. Do not pollute the land where you are. Bloodshed pollutes the land, and atonement cannot be made for the land on which blood has been shed except by the blood of the one who shed it. Do not defile the land where you live and where I dwell, for I, Yahweh, dwell among the Israelites. That's, some of that stuff is real sobering, isn't it? So, this concept of cities of refuge is tied in with uh, the term they use here is avenger. Uh, another term they common, commonly use is the kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer is a person whose responsibility it is for his family to avenge wrongdoings. Among other things, the kinsman redeemer, we read uh, past chapters about uh, the way an Israelite might be uh, deprived of his land. He might go into debt and not be able to repay the debt, in which case he sells himself as a slave. Uh, at the Jubilee, the kinsman redeemer is responsible for making sure that that, uh, that man, uh, he redeems him. He, he pays the debt or he does whatever he has to do to, get the, to make things right. The kinsman redeemer has a responsibility to his family to right wrongs that have been done to the family. And among other things, it includes if one of the family members has been murdered. If a family member has been murdered, it's the kinsman redeemer's responsibility to avenge that murder. And that's what's talked about here. Um, notice that this thing makes a very good explanation of the difference between murder and what we call today manslaughter. You know, it, it describes in great detail what murder has to be. Someone has to you know, plan, it even uses the word malice aforethought, to kill someone. And that person, if it's witnessed by more than one person, is guilty and shall be put to death. There's, you can't redeem them. Well, that's, that's the rule. But if it was an accident, um, then it gets adjudicated. And the priests uh, examine the facts, and they look and they try to determine, um, you know, could this have been an accident? Was it an accident? Or did the guy really hate him and he just out and out killed him? And based on what the priest's determination is, um, therein lies the fate of the, of the person. So it's a very complicated thing. If you want to read more about the kinsman redeemer, Ruth is an excellent book, and it's short to go read about that. And, of course, the obvious analysis is that our kinsman redeemer is the Messiah. 
So he's the one that is uh, paying the price to redeem us. Yes. It seems weird that, I mean, it, it does, but maybe not, that um, the family, a family member is the one who has to murder the murderer. Mm -hmm. Kill, I would prefer, but yes. Yes, put to death. Mm -hmm. um, and I was thinking, what if, there, if there's a circumstance where the family does not want to do that, um, then are, are they breaking God's well, word? If, if, if I read this, mm -hmm. uh, what it says is, if the uh, person is obviously guilty of murder, and it tells you what it has to be to be guilty of murder. It has to be a testimony of more than one witness, of two or more witnesses. And, and you know, that, and that's the standard phrase they use in Perry Mason all the time, you know. Uh, motive and opportunity, and uh, you've got to be able to uh, determine. That's why judges, being judge is a big deal. You've got to be able to look at the facts as objectively as possible and make a decision, did this guy do this with malice aforethought or was this an, uh, uh, an accident? And I'm sure they try to err on the side of caution and all that kind of stuff. But it clearly says that if he is guilty of murder, then he is not redeemed. He must pay the penalty. What it says. So it's a pretty interesting kind of thing. It's One of the things that surprised me is we're looking at this document, which is at least 2,500, probably 3,500 years old. And it talks about stuff that is just really pertinent today. You know, like I say, manslaughter. That's I always thought that was something that we invented, right? No, it's a real thing, and God has a, has a, he recognizes it as such. It's amazing to me how many people have no clue that our legal system is based yeah. on the, this information. Yeah, it is. Yeah, so yeah say, nothing. Except, no, nobody, what it is is, and, and then, I'm sorry to say this, we've just lost sight of that. Because yeah. it was there. The founding fathers knew it was there. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, we're so far removed, which, yeah. I mean, I guess that's what happened to uh, Israel as time went mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. You know, they're just yeah. a bunch of yeah. harlots, you know, little yeah, brothers. Yeah, stuff. they just kind of, if, if you don't, I think that's part of the reason, for example, for these feast days and stuff like that. You, if it's not taught to the jump and passed down, it goes away? Yeah. The fact that they want to remove the Ten Commandments, you know, that's just a, a big thing lately. Yeah, yeah. Uh, remove the Ten Commandments. And it, it's like, do you have any idea what your legal oh, system yeah. is based on? Yeah. Or even our, our country, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, and Founding all of this fathers. stuff, as we look at the way God defines things, it's, it's intimately fair. I mean, it's without doubt fair. You can't do it on one witness. That's a really nice thing, right? Because... Um, one witness is not enough to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that a guy is guilty of murder. It takes at least two. Now, one witness you could bribe, one witness could be wrong, but two, it's a lot harder, although it's clearly done. And there are cases documented in the Bible where it has been done. But the point is, is it's at least fair if it's done this way, you know? Marvin. She raised a good point. If there is no kins kinsman redeemer or whoever that is doesn't want to execute justice, mm -hmm. is there anyone else that can do it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think I, this is me talking. It's a little out of school. But 
the rule is the murderer must die. If the kinsman redeemer won't do it, then the judge, you know, the judge will make sure it's done somehow. Um, so yeah, it has to happen. That's typically what the stoning is all about. Can I ruffle our feathers? <laughs> He's not smiling anymore. <laughs> Go ahead. All right. From your comment, we have to look at ourselves and go, are we still playing the harlot? Oh, sure. And, um, and this is a lot more serious than I think. Um, that's the whole distraction. I mean, we are being called out. Obviously, this is part of our repentance and what we're doing right here. But um, I think we're a lot deeper in the muck and the amount, yeah. Oh, yeah. the amount of repentance that he wants from us is to liberate us from mm -hmm. it all. Mm -hmm. And so those questions you're asking are really important. And we have to get to that level where what he said at the end of the, pass, the other passage, right, the other ver 34, um, that, that we understand it enough yeah. to actually drive out. You know, yep. and, but first, like I said, within our own selves and our families, then within our congregations, yep. and then let's see what we can do. Yep, that's true. Joe's got something. You know, we, we think of the uh, falling away the day, the apostasy, that, uh, that, but the Jews were doing that way, way, way back there at this time. <laughs> Because they were, you know, maybe this is where it all started, mm -hmm. but uh, there was a falling away, so sure. not, nothing's new no, under the right. sun. That's right. This, this, is, uh, this reminds me of, you know, like this, the law of entropy, right? If, if, if anything is well-ordered and you just let it sit, it'll eventually deteriorate to nothing. And so if there's not, uh, you know, if, if, if this is not worked on and worked at and studied and thought about, it'll just fall away to nothing. And it's happened over and over and over again, and it's happening now. So, yeah. Well, to your point of with uh, uh, bribing witnesses, even in Torah, if I'm remembering this correctly, essentially, if you are caught lying as a witness, the punishment that was due to the offender gets placed upon you. So there's a yeah. bit of a cost-benefit analysis that one should run. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yep. you're exactly right. I remember we talked about this a couple of weeks ago about perjury. You know, they call it perjury these days. And yeah, whatever, whatever punishment was being contemplated for the person that's on trial, if you commit perjury, that, that punishment is yours. Yeah. All right, I'll make it lighter. Good. <laughs> but, so the idea is, right, if we're going towards increasing entropy um, or chaos, right, the antidote for that is obviously his word. So mm -hmm. the evidence of where we are is the amount of um, ability to maintain order mm -hmm. because of his word. So that's the testimony, right? It's our feedback. Yep. That's good. Okay. This is going to work. Four more minutes. We have one chapter and it's short. Does somebody want to read chapter 36? I'll read it. If nobody wants to, who raised their hand? Did someone kind of raise their hand? Kenny? Nope, nope. Okay, I'll read it. It's, it's quick. I don't want you guys to have to stay late. I always hate it when I do that. So chapter 36. 
oh, I know, I was going to have a, a filter say, you can't read chapter 36 unless you can say Zalafahad. Yeah, but anyway. So, chapter 36. The family heads of the clan of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, who were from the clans of the descendants of Joseph, came and spoke before Moses and the leaders and the heads of the Israelite families. <clears throat> they said, when Yahweh commanded my Lord to give the land as an inheritance to the Israelites by lot, he ordered you to give the inheritance of our brother Zelophehad to his daughters. <clears throat> now suppose they marry men from other Israelite tribes. Then their inheritance will be taken from our ancestral inheritance and added to that of the tribe they marry into. And so part of the inheritance allotted to us will be taken away. When the year of Jubilee for the Israelites comes, their inheritance will be added to that of the tribe into which they marry, and their property will be taken from the tribal inheritance of our forefathers. I shouldn't have chosen to do this. Then, <clears throat> at the Lord's command, Moses gave this order to the Israelites. What the tribe of the descendants of Joseph is saying is right. This is what Yahweh commands for Zelophehad's daughters. They may marry anyone they please as long as they marry within the tribal clan of their father. No inheritance in Israel is to pass from tribe to tribe. For every Israelite shall keep the tribal land inherited from his forefathers. Every daughter who inherits land in any Israelite tribe must marry someone in her father's tribal clan so that every Israelite will possess the inheritance of his fathers. No inheritance may pass from tribe to tribe. For each Israelite tribe is to keep the land it inherits. So Zelophehad's daughters did as Yahweh commanded Moses. Zelophehad's daughters, Mala, Tirzah, Hoglah, Milcah, and Noah, married their cousins on their father's side. They married within the clans of the descendants of Manasseh, son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in their father's clan and tribe. These are the commands and regulations of Yahweh that Yahweh gave through Moses to the Israelites on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. And thus endeth the chapter, the book of Numbers. Yes. Well, that's actually, that happened quite frequently here. And I think, the, I think they worry about it genetically if it's a first cousin. But if it's a second cousin or more, then I don't think there's probably a big issue with it. it at least that was what, what I would say. But see, it's, it's, uh, it's within the tribal clan. So what that means is it's a big group. I mean, there's, what was it, something like 75,000 of Man, uh, Manasseh's, Manasseh's um, tribe. So they could marry anywhere within that. They just couldn't marry somebody outside that. And, and keep their inheritance. That's what it means. Um, I may be off here, but these people, well, not these people, but their parents or whatever were slaves. They had nothing. They roamed in the wilderness. And now they're worried about not having enough land or somebody yeah, They're worried marrying. about inheritance they haven't yeah. even seen yet. Yeah. I'm like, is this something, is this about more than just that? Because that seems pretty petty. No, I don't think it is. I think that it's, uh, I don't, that's a good question. I think, um, I think at some point in Israel's history, it probably came up. As a matter of fact, I think the thing that's fascinating is this is not the first time we've read about Salafahad's daughters. And it, whenever, it was just several chapters back. We read about them before, and it was the same thing. But he didn't make it clear at that time about the daughters having to marry within the tribe. 
And that's what was made clear here that wasn't made clear the first time we read this. And that's what it takes. The other thing this does, this reinforces this plan that God had where the, the tribe's inheritance, land, inherited land, the, the allotted land at the book of Joshua, at the end of the book of Joshua, was supposed to have stayed intact forever because every 50 years it came back. You know? And so all the descendants of, the, of each of those tribes could have a piece of land, if you will, forever. They didn't do it. They didn't follow God's commands, and so they lost it. But that was what his plan was. Go. I was wondering when Ahab wanted this piece of property and Jezebel, Jezebel had the owner of that property uh, killed, was this part of the inheritance that we were just reading about? It probably was. It was... Uh, I know the story. That's one of the most heart-wrenching stories. Yeah. Um, but it was what it was. It was land that was in that guy's family, and it was his inheritance. And when the king said, I'd like to buy that land from you, the guy said, I'm not selling it. It's part of the family inheritance, and I'm keeping that land. And, uh, you know, as you pointed out, Ahab was upset about it. So Jezebel says, no problem, I'll take care of it. And she had two or three guys get together and lie in court and accuse this guy of a capital punishment. And so they killed him, and then Ahab took the land, totally against the Torah, on several levels. So that's how bad it got. I assume all these family acreage, or whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. are all together. Well, each with the exception, With the exception of Manasseh. Manasseh was split. Right. But they were they were across the river from each other. Oh, they were. So yeah. they were almost connected. Yeah. So they so his daughters could go from either yeah. group A or B. Yeah. For the men. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Wasn't Dan split too? Well, Dan actually is a it's a bigger thing than split. Dan inherited the land over on the coast, and they never could get rid of all the uh, Philistines, and so they ended up moving up north. And they ended up taking a big bunch up north. So you'll see maps sometimes that show Dan down in the center on the coast, and other times you'll see him up north. But it was because they went from this to that. They weren't really split. But that's an important question. That's, you know, if you really want to... One time, it was Ralphie and I, we went to a study on Joshua. Joshua's a very interesting book, and it talks about that. Okay, you guys were great. We finally made it through the book of Numbers. Next week, we'll start Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is a neat book. You're going to like it. It's a great way to end the Torah. So if there aren't any other comments, I'll close. Huh? That was not the nice way to say that. Are there any other comments? Okay, I'll close. Father God, thank you very much for the evening. Thank you for your Torah. Thank you for the fun things that uh, we're able to discuss. Uh, thank you for the detail that you put in here. Thank you for the challenges of kind of track things down, try to figure out how it would have worked. I just, I'm just totally amazed that this stuff, uh, this stuff, this uh, information still makes sense and applies and, and you can kind of grasp it here uh, as, as long ago as you wrote it. Keep us safe as we go through the week. Uh, help us think on these things during the week and uh, just come to a better understanding of who you are and how you'd like us to behave and relate to you. 
in Yeshua's name. Amen. Okay. Thanks very much. That was great.